Jim Durkin is here. He's the Republican leader of the Illinois House. Jim, welcome back. Bill, uh, pleasure to be back. And uh, unfortunately, I know we can't do this in person, so I'm calling from my office in Springfield in the Capitol. It still works for radio. Absolutely. I've got a face for radio, as they say. That's right, me too. <laughs> yeah. Since uh, we talked last in January, Mike Madigan is gone. What's it been like without Speaker Madigan there? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting sight uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives uh, without having the, uh, the Mike Madigan presence. Even though he's gone, I think his presence still looms in the chambers, um, particularly now when we're dealing with this redistricting process. But you know, it's it's hard to tell. The, uh, the new speaker has uh, been buttoned up in his office, um, and uh, he uh, – I, I can't say that uh, we're in a better place right now. Uh, I was hoping there would be more collaboration with uh, Speaker Welch. I've known him for over 20 years personally. Uh, but uh, uh, we're in a uh, the most important time of the legislative session, and that's in the last week. But this particular year, we have uh, the annual budget uh, uh, discussions, but we have in the uh, every 10 year we're, we do the legislative redistricting, redistricting, and that's what we are hopefully going to see some uh, sign of where these new legislative maps are. But what I want to say is that the Democrats had, and Speaker Welch at the beginning of the year talked about that this is a new day. It's a new day for Springfield, and we're going to have to work together in a collaborative manner. And the biggest issue we have at hand is going to be this legislative redistricting. That's where the power lies, and that's what uh, the Democrats are not going to change their, their ways. Uh, they've drawn their maps in a secret room. Uh, there is really, there's been zero input from Republicans that are using data that has been uh, uh, rejected outright as a reliable source for census information. So uh, long and short of it, nothing's really changed. Yeah, but tell the truth, Jim. I mean, does either side really want fair maps? Aren't both sides pretending? I mean, if you guys were in the majority, you'd do it that way too, wouldn't you? No. No, I, I, I wouldn't. I would have an independent commission uh, done and let the chips fall where they may. And I've been consistent on that. And when I put my, my name on anything, I stick with it. Uh, people know me as a person who uh, stands by the statements. Uh, but I'm not going to issue press releases, as the speaker did a few years ago, saying that the only way to protect minority interests minority interest in Illinois is through an independent uh, commission to draw the legislative maps. That's the only way uh, that this can be done right. Politicians should have no place in it. If I'm going to issue a statement like that, I'm going to back it up. That's what we have to do in Springfield, and that's what the people of Illinois are sick and tired of, is a, a lot of rhetoric coming from, whether it's governors or from members of the legislature, of what their top priorities are. But when it comes down to game time, they do a complete flip. But this issue of the redistricting bill, it's extremely important, because this is what absolute power and control come from. And what we're seeing right now of what's happening in the federal courthouse is a glaring example of the power and control in this arrogance that has come from the Democrat Party, from Mike Madigan all the way down to the rank and file. It's turned Illinois into a corrupt state in a state that is, uh, is, is still in a downward spiral financially. That is in, for one reason, to maintain power and control. 
And I've noticed a, a, an argument that gerrymandering actually promotes division and prevents bipartisan compromise. Explain that. I, uh, gerrymandering doesn't do anything good for the uh, for the states and the citizens of Illinois, uh, so I, I can't explain that. You know, we're, we're, this should be done where it's a uh, a map process that is based on the demographic shifts of the of the districts uh, that reflect communities. We should not break up communities. Uh, uh, we need to follow what the courts have said historically and how the maps should be um, uh, drawn. But what's important in this one, it's one thing to draw. I've, I've heard rumors about how some maps and some out districts are going to look like a, a piece of pasta that's been twisted in about 15 different uh, ways. Uh, but what when we talk about this particular uh, legislative remapping, we usually have had U.S. Census information, the data from the U.S. Census Bureau that we use to draw the districts. Uh, you know, it was just a few months ago that Governor Pritzker proclaimed that we did a great job of getting, uh, you know, our census information, making sure that everybody counts. But the Democrats will not be using the U.S. Census data information because it is going to be delayed so the Democrats are going to rely upon a branch within the U.S. Census Bureau called the American Community Survey, which is an annual demographic survey throughout the United States. And in Illinois, 200,000 households are the foundation for the U.S. for the American Community Survey. So the Democrats are going to say we're going to use that information instead of the uh, Census Bureau information. So the Democrats will draw the maps based on 200,000 Illinoisans. But let's be real. <clears throat> They're not going to wait for the uh, bigger census findings because that would <clears throat> blow the uh, June 1st deadline in the Constitution and give you guys a big say in how the map would work. So they'll they'll push it through uh, before June 1st, won't they? Well, you know, true to form, they will go back on their words uh, and they will uh, force a map through that is partisan, one that has not been transparent. Uh, they will want to maintain complete control, and that's how they do it. But what? But Bill, here's the thing: They're, the Democrats, including the governor and you know the president, of the Senate, and the speaker, are going to say that we have a constitutional deadline by the end of June. That's for a partisan-drawn map. The only deadline that means anything in the redistricting process is, is October 5th, when the maps have to be certified with by this by the uh, uh, Secretary of State. So. Uh, we are what the Democrats are putting us in a position to is to have courts look into the propriety of these maps, and I'm prepared to do that. And this is a different uh, analysis that we've seen in previous legal challenges to legislative maps, because there is a, a, a viable issue at hand about using this information. Courts in different parts of the United States have thoroughly rejected the use of American Community Survey data to count people for legislative or municipal uh, boundary making. So, uh, look, Democrats are going to do what they want to do. They can spin it no matter how many ways they want. Uh, every Democrat has, uh, who has run for office over the past five or ten years have said that they support independent maps. And the governor has now backtracked. He said that he will veto a map that is uh, drawn by uh, by, by politicians, and then now he says that he will only he will veto an unfair map. So I'm not quite sure which uh, what is the flavor of the day for the governor when it comes to how he's going to approach the maps. But I plan to hold him accountable 
on his commitment that he made when he ran for governor. The Democrats in the House and Senate will pass a gerrymandered map. Now it's up to the governor to see whether or not he is going to hold true to Illinois citizens and what he campaigned on against Bruce Rauner. Now, the ruling Democrats are also promising ethics reform again. What do you expect here? Um, I expect uh, not much. I, I, I haven't seen anything that is of meaning that will be uh, brought to the legislative process. Uh, and, you know, we've been at this. We, the House Republicans, have been at this for almost two years, from the time in which former Senator Sandoval was uh, – was arrested, search warrants were executed, and then you had another Democrat leader in the House named Arroyo who was lobbying a Democrat state senator and was bribing him. I don't know what it's going to take for these guys to actually do anything that is going to force us to police ourselves in a meaningful fashion. Uh, I believe that we will see um, some legislation that is perhaps a half of a, a loaf towards any type of ethics reform. I don't know how difficult it should be to pass a bill that says legislators should not be lobbyists in any way. They shouldn't be lobbying in Springfield, but also at the local governments. Uh, I don't know how difficult it should be for us to expand our economic interest statements to ensure that uh, the way in which we do for the judiciary to fully determine whether or not there are true financial conflicts of interest with members of the legislature. But, but, Bill, this is two years now that we're in, and the Democrats are still saying that, well, we're working on it. Um, the important thing is, is that the Republicans have not been participating. We've been not given a, a seat at the table with ethics reform. Um, but, you know, this ComEd, these other investigations that are going on, they will continue. There will be more shoes dropping in, in, in with the investigations that are going on with the federal government, but it doesn't seem to concern the Democrats from the top to the bottom that there is a crisis of confidence in the state in which the way that the legislators behave. And it's always been fascinating to me that <clears throat> too many uh, politicians just keep stealing, knowing that the feds are probably listening or have a mole in the room. Why is that? Why do they just keep stealing? Uh, you know, I, I think it, it it's based on the individuals that are recruited to run for office. They're coming out of, I, I would say that it's the quality of the individuals that are recruited. Uh, and, you know, we have a lot of people who serve in the uh, House Democrat side who blindly follow Mike Madigan because a lot of them came out of the ward organizations or different uh, advocacy groups who uh, are extremely partisan. And uh, it's a temptation that uh, uh, drives this. I think this goes back to biblical times, and I don't think that we're going to be able to legislate uh, ethics, Bill, but uh, the public, I would hope, will do a better job uh, performing their due diligence on men and women who seek the position of House of Rep member of the House of Representatives or the Senate. Um, and this is an argument that I'm going to have to make over the next year and a half about which party has, a moral, has the moral high ground in this state when it comes to using uh, and spending public's money, the public money, but those who are not abusing their, pro their, their, their office at the same time. So, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I can't legislate morals, but we can uh, but we can do things such as pass common sense bills that tell the legislators that this is not 
conduct that you can conduct. It, you will be punished if you do it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that we still haven't gotten to this point where we've had a bill that addresses the corruption that has uh, uh, has been a, the darkest of cloud over Springfield in some time, based on the investigations that are going on with the uh, uh, ComEd and also with the red light scandal. And as we're chatting here on Midday Friday, the BGA and Block Club Chicago, they're out with a new expose, which uh, reveals that the majority leader of the state Senate, Kimberly Lightford, got Caribbean trips and campaign donations and cash through Loretto Hospital, where uh, they were doling out vaccinations improperly to the politically connected. What do you think of this chapter? Well, it's embarrassing. It's just another uh, chapter in the long, um, sad tale of Illinois politics. Um, the issue of that legislator's position on that uh, hospital board needs to be further scrutinized and whether or not there was spe uh, special treatment that was made in Springfield for the hospital uh, because of that legislator's uh, position, um, it needs to be analyzed. And I, I would imagine that uh, this is going to continue uh, on with some type of inquiry within uh, our inspector general's office. But it's, it's extremely embarrassing. And the whole chapter of the Loretto Hospital, how they have dealt with the, uh, the vaccinations, and um, has, has really been a, a sad tale for a community that is in the West side of Chicago that has uh, is completely is terribly underserved when it comes to medical uh, accessibility and health accessibility that we know that we have a hospital that is uh, seemingly uh, operating on an unethical path and has clearly uh, abandoned the mission that they have uh, or that they that that establishes why they are serving in that region. We're talking issues with Jim Durkin of Western Springs. He's the Republican leader of the Illinois House. What do you think of uh, the Democrats deciding to repay from state funds, not federal funds, $2 billion of uh, federal debt, uh, just as you're trying to balance a budget uh, down in Springfield? Right. Well, we found that out yesterday, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in the math that the Democrats have used to come to that conclusion. Uh, but the Democrats are able to come up with an additional $2 billion of to pay down the federal debt, but they are still claiming at the same time that there is a $1.3 or so billion dollar deficit in which the Democrats, meaning the governor, wants to what close what he determines now are corporate loopholes, and that would be the uh, the tax scholarship for low-income families in, uh, um, in, 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 in throughout Chicago and also in different parts of the state. Uh, and so if we have the money to be able to pay that debt off, I think that's a good sign, and I'm glad we're doing that. Uh, but at the same time, you have to be able to forecast of what the financial prospects are going to be for the following year. We're looking at an uptick of revenue this year um, in Illinois, uh, based on the federal bailout that has come from not only this administration but also the previous administration, there's been a lot of spending, and that's uh, been a benefit for the states. Uh, the long-term inflation aspects of it are yet to be determined, but uh, the governor can't say with a straight face that we have to close corporate loopholes, the same ones which he just told us two years ago, which I negotiated with him on the capital program and also the budget, 
he said at that time these were job-creating uh, incentives. Now they're corporate loopholes. And uh, so the governor still is, uh, I think, acting out of spite because uh, Republicans did not support his fair tax last, last November. Uh, but Democrats didn't support it, and independents didn't support it. So we do have additional monies. Uh, but let me just be very brief. We have a $5 billion hole in our unemployment trust fund that needs to be replenished. That was affected directly by COVID. We have not been able to reform a property tax, a, a, a really just a, a cruel property tax system that we have throughout the state of Illinois, even though there's been promises made. We're looking at a $10 billion pension payment this year, too. So the biggest issues of the day still have been put on the back burner. So um, we can walk and chew gum at the same time and do all of this and address all of this if there's a willingness on behalf of the administration and the Democrat leaders. So uh, this is, but just remember, there's new money. This is a one-time, a one-time fix by the federal government. So you've got to look beyond not only this this current year, which we're which we have a deficit, but you've got to go the, a year out and a year after that. And if you start creating new spending programs, what you've done is that you will now, in perpetuity, have to fund these programs. So this is something I hope that we can we can reconcile over the next week. But I do believe that the governor has been on a path of vindictiveness by saying that we're going to close corporate loopholes, mainly because out of spite from the way that uh, he lost the fair tax. Now, the property tax really screams at me. In all the years I've been covering Springfield, nothing real has been done about the confiscatory property taxes here in the Chicago area. Why is it, do you think, that this obvious problem is never solved? Well, there's been a lot of speculation that the property tax system works well for a handful of few uh, attorneys and also, uh, you know, property tax appraisers, um, and keeping the status quo is a very good business model for them. And uh, our former speaker is one of those who uh, has uh, exclusively done property tax appeal work. I can't say that for certain that whether or not his uh, his position and his success doing that has stymied the any type of property tax reform, but it is a contributing factor. The issue that we have is that there has to be a balance between not only the uh, the property tax owner, the local governments, and also the commercial buildings uh, that uh, pay large amounts of property tax. It's complicated, but the fact is we need to give property tax owners uh, the ability through referendum to make decisions on whether or not levies are going to be frozen and uh, whether or not uh, uh, there needs to be a scaling back of the uh, local governments that have been uh, are the main route of the high property taxes. It's a very complicated process, but again, there was a panel that was created a year and a half ago by the governor to address property taxes and reforming the system, and it was outright rejected by not only the governor, but also everybody else who has, has some uh, skin in the game. So um, it shouldn't be, it, it, uh, let me just say this, it's a complicated issue, but two years ago I negotiated a $40 billion spending program. I negotiated a $38 billion uh, budget and a massive gaming expansion in 36 hours. So I'm willing to find 
some type of relief for property tax owners, whether it's on the way assessments are made or helping them, giving property tax owners a viable chance to appeal their taxes. Hmm. Who do you like as a Republican challenger for Prisker in uh, next year? You know, it's still early. Uh, There are a number of candidates that are dipping their toe in the water, but I'm going to wait until it's real, meaning when someone is able to put the petitions together and have them filed with the State Board of Elections, and then I'll make an assessment on who I think is the most viable and the strongest candidate to run against the current governor. And, Jim, what did you think about the great flap down at City Hall Chicago this week with the mayor wanting to impose racial quotas on the City Hall press corps? Well, um, as a person operating out of Springfield, I will take a pass on that one. <laughs> Does she look vulnerable to you for re-election? You know, I just have to say that, you know, a lot of people have said many things about the current mayor, but the thing is she she had walked into a firestorm with CTU, CTU um, and the other um, other contracts she's negotiating, but also uh, unprecedented violence in the city of Chicago. So I think people need to still understand that this has been a unique time for a new mayor. Uh, and, you know, I know her. I have confidence in her. I think that she can, you know, uh, she's going to have a lot of people uh, gunning for her, but uh, she's a strong-willed person. She uh, wants. I know she does the right thing, and uh, and I hope that she continues on and just does what she thinks is right, as opposed to being told from outside influences of how to run the city of Chicago. That's Jim Durkin. He's the Republican leader of the House. Jim, thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Bill. Talk to you soon. And by the way, in this space next week, we're going to spend more time on that question of why so many politicians just keep stealing when they know the feds are watching. Up next, our roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long at the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hello there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, I guess we got to begin with the uh, local and national reactions stirred up this week after the mayor decided to give midterm interviews only to reporters of color because she thinks the City Hall press corps is overwhelmingly white and male. Let's begin by listening to a little of what she said on Thursday. We are in a time where we're having a powerful and important conversation around systemic racism in every institution. And the press and the media can't be exempt from that conversation. So one day out of 365, I say that I'm going to mark the anniversary of my two years in office by giving exclusive one-on-ones to journalists of color and the world loses its mind. How about we focus on doing what is necessary to step up, make different and better hiring decisions to diversify the ranks of the Chicago press corps? If you're keeping score, I did check on the City Hall Press Corps. There are about 20 of us, either with desks in the press room or desks back at uh, the home office, people who cover the mayor, who could be called the City Hall Press Corps. 20 of us, seven are people of color, meaning that 35% of us indeed are reporters of color. But Greg, what was your reaction to all this? 
you know, Bill, we could talk about this forever. Uh, this is so very Lori Lightfoot. Um, uh, her motives are uh, her, her, what she, her goal here is is laudable, uh, but her uh, the way she does it is is questionable, and then it raises questions about her real intent. Uh, now let me parse that a little bit. Um, everybody. Everybody knows that the news business doesn't have enough people of color working for it. Um, our editors have all have all gone to efforts for years, uh, maybe not strong enough to hire more people, and none of us have enough. Uh, and, you know, and and that's just a fact. Uh, uh, that having been said, uh, and let me add one other thing: maybe maybe to maybe to get the the bosses to work a little bit harder, uh, they occasionally need to have a, a swift kick to the butt to uh, to do it, and maybe the mayor provided that. Now that having been said, the mayor is exaggerating, Bill, as your as your facts talk about. Uh, one, uh, if 35% are people of color, that doesn't mean at least 65%. I wouldn't call that overwhelming. Uh, uh, the mayor, in her letter, went after our editorial board, uh, saying it didn't have any, any people of color on it, which is true. But our editorial board doesn't just represent the city of Chicago; it represents and covers the entire metropolitan area, which cons- which is considerably more white than the city. Are we supposed to? You know, not uh, not ignore them. Um, um, she talked about blacks and Hispanics, but she didn't talk about other things. I mean, I'll, I'll make it personal. Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only openly gay person uh, who covers City Hall on a regular basis. Uh, I'm part of the City Hall press corps of sorts, uh, but uh, but yet uh, the mayor's book I'm fairly put down as a as a as a white guy, even though the mayor talks a lot about how she's the first lesbian mayor of Chicago and that's something to be accomplished. So my what I, my takeaway from all that is, what's the mayor really trying to accomplish here? She really want to start a conversation, and if so, why didn't she call up uh, editors and publishers, or whatever, and say, "Guys, you're really not doing enough here. We need to we need to take the bull by the horns and do something," or is she trying to make a political point for a political objective to with uh, with helping herself as her as her uh, presumed reelection bid in two years comes up? How about you, Heather? You're a member of the City Hall Press Corps, like uh, Greg and I. What was your take on this? Well, I think it's important to keep two thoughts in our heads at the same time. Uh, One, certainly, like many other industries and professions, the news media has a diversity problem, and there's no doubt that it would benefit the city if the City Hall Press Corps looks like the city that it covers. Uh, However, the second thought is, is that this has really taken up all of the oxygen in the air over the mayor's second anniversary. And she is facing crisis points really uh, on all sides. She is under fire for um, her flip-flop on the elected school board. She campaigned in favor of a fully elected school board. She now favors a hybrid board that would allow her to appoint um, some percentage of the board yet to be determined. Uh, she campaigned in favor of the grassroots accountability um, civilian oversight board of the police department. She now no longer favors that model and is going to introduce a whole new proposal, she says, on Monday. Um, talking about the diversity issues in the news business, which which are real and which are serious and should be addressed, um, has taken all of the focus off those very real issues that Lori Lightfoot campaigned on and has yet to deliver. Um, And it has really sort of made it more difficult to talk about policy issues. And and perhaps someone more cynical than I would suggest that that was the reason that the mayor became interested in 
the diversity problems in the news media in Chicago this week. No doubt about that. It diverts attention from all the big, big problems. Ray, how about you? What was your take on this? Well, first of all, I agree. More people of color are needed in newsrooms throughout the city. And uh, it's true at the Trib. It's true everywhere. Uh, As far as I can tell, there should be better representation of the city as a whole. We should have better uh, demographics in newsrooms to match the demographics of the city. And that's something that's an, an issue I fought for for 40 years, dating back to when I was a union bargainer at the Peoria Journal Star. And we fought for more representation and better representation there. And it's still an issue today. And so uh, further, I just think it's wrong at any time to pick and choose based on the color of one's skin uh, to make a point out of this. You can have caucuses of of, uh, you know, African-American reporters or Hispanic press or whatever at different times. But you you might be doing that to address specific issues. But to come out and make it uh, literally a black, white, brown issue is uh, probably a bad approach to to the way she handled it. Further, I don't think it's uh, right to tell the TRIB or any news organization. And the TRIB... had a Hispanic reporter, Greg Pratt, who was lined up for a, an interview and declined it because of this um, l- rule that she laid down. I don't think it's right for uh, any politician to tell the TRIB or any other news organization that we'll only talk to reporters based on the color of their skin. So uh, she could have come out at a different forum. She could have come out and held a press conference. She could have given a speech at the Chicago Headline Club, the National Association of Black Journalists, the uh, Asian Journalists, the Women Journalists, the NAACP, or the City Press Club. But she didn't, and I think um, that's just uh, an approach. Her approach probably hurt her, but I I, I thought it was also interesting that uh, Charles Thomas, a former former uh, political reporter for one of the TV stations who's African-American said he, he viewed it as a stunt uh, to distract from her issues. And Jay Levine had a, a, a former uh, TV reporter, former uh, TV reporter who is white and Jewish said that he, uh, he covered Harold Washington. He covered Barack Obama. He's covered popes, but he could not have been able to get a, an interview with the mayor on her second anniversary based on the rule that she set down. So I just want to reiterate, there is a problem uh, in newsrooms overall, but I do not believe that uh, the approach really uh, was the right one. How about you, Lynn? What was your take on this? Well, there's so many things to talk about. and What everyone has said is, is so well considered. One of the issues here actually goes to the institution of the City Hall Press Corps and the how little turn, turnover uh, there is. And I think we want to recognize the expertise that my colleague Fran Spielman has, that you have, Bill. Uh, Greg Hines has been around for, forever. Uh, some, you know, I, I'm in Washington, but the, the beat reporters uh, in City Hall are so 
well sourced and so well knowledge the um, the institution of the city hall press room uh, has to be considered too when you talk about it because there's more than the mere racial dimension on it. It 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 is who is there. Sometimes we talk about these things only too much in the abstract, but uh, the conversation I think should regard the expertise that your listeners, my readers. Uh, our area gets from having the people in there who are there. Now, should there be more voices, more incorporation? Uh, many outlets uh, exist now that didn't exist years ago. And Lori Lightfoot did reach out to them in her second anniversary thing. I think the thing to watch for it, I, I'm not, uh, it seems from the panel you, think it, panel, you think it was a bad tactic. Okay, but if we get away from the messenger and focus on the message, if she wanted to be provocative, she was. Um, and I think all her, the controversies and if she didn't live up to campaign pledges, that's all going to be covered. You're, that's what you do, and that's what you all do so well, is you have this institutional memory. And that's not going away. Why there still is room for improvement, as we've all discussed, in diversity within the ranks of Chicago's journalism community. Speaking of institutional memory, I can remember when I came on the beat, uh, Richard J. Daly, the first Mayor Daly, used to peer over the rostrum at us and look down on the front row of us and say, I've known some dishonest newspaper men in my time. I could spit on some from here. (laughs) (laughs) So I just think it was a good City Hall flap, just the latest in the many battles by many mayors with the press, and it will blow over. Hey, Ray, bring us up to date on what the Tribune Pub Board did on Friday with regard to uh, either accepting or rejecting the vulture capitalists taking over. Well, as you know, it was a big uh, uh, vote uh, today, uh, or rather we're speaking on Friday, where uh, shareholders were asked to vote for or against a hedge fund named uh, Alden Global Capital on whether they should have ownership of the paper or not. Right now it's public and they and Alden owns 32 plus percent. And uh, they could not vote uh, in the vote on whether they could take over or not. So all eyes turned to the owner of the LA Times, whose name is Patrick Sunshian. He's a, a you know, well-renowned uh, doctor who has uh, worked on cancer cures and is now trying to work on uh, how to harness the variants in uh, all of the uh, uh, vaccines and, and uh, all of the different COVID diseases that we have here. And so anyway, he uh, had 24% of the remaining shares. That's enough to put air, put him uh, in the driver's seat. He could block it or he could uh, save it, if you will. Um, and he did not apparently mark his ballot. Then the ballot apparently had a, a place to say yes, no, or abstain. The rules listed on the ballot said if you don't mark abstain, uh, it'll be counted as a, a yes. The SEC has, uh, in a filing, SEC filing said that if you abstain, it's counted as a no. 
So right now, Alden is viewing it as a victory, and has uh, and the Tribune publishers have, publishing has uh, declared Alden the winner and has approved. But the the kind of difficulties could end up calling out lawyers. <laughs> yeah, it could end up with a, a lawsuit from some aggrieved shareholder. Wow. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. Don't you, Greg? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, there's the rules, there's SEC rules, and there's uh, uh, IRS rules and whatever that govern these kinds of transactions. Uh, if there is some reasonable basis to uh, to conclude that something is hinky here, and if there's an agreed shareholder who's willing to spend the money to take it to court, it appears if if Ray's uh, understanding is correct uh, that there would be some kind of rational basis to sue that, hey, you know, uh, these guys didn't win it, the thing, it, it's still up in the air, and it was rejected. Um, and I'm sure there's uh, – uh, I, I can see whole uh, whole lines of people in pinstripe suits would be happy to take that up if somebody wants to spend the money to do it. What do you think, Heather? Should we take this as good news, bad news, or just more misery for our colleagues at the Tribune? Well, um, the latest report I've seen from the Tribune business desk is that uh, Patrick Soon-Jung did not vote. He did not check that abstained um, box on the ballot. And had he checked that box, it would have counted um, to block the sale. Um, he did not check any box, which will allow the sale to go through, according to Tribune Publishing. And I think if the sale is completed, which I think looks likely at this point, um, my heart breaks for the members of the, the Tribune Guild. Um, and um, based on Alden's track record, um, that it, it is going to be a very dark period for the Chicago Tribune and, and all of Chicago journalism, quite frankly. Lynn, what do you think of this development? If Alden prevails, and I agree, there'll probably be a court fight. Uh, it, it is not it, it is not good for the Tribune. My heart goes out to everybody. I hope people do not lose jobs. Uh, this is very serious. We're at a crossroads in Chicago journalism, and uh, this this was not a good development. And the the you know, and that's. You know, that's where we're at right now. Uh, probably this is not as resolved as Alden said it was. It'll be interesting to see if they even try to close next week or very fast, even if a lawsuit is filed. My guess is things have to happen very fast one way or the other if people want to protest this. Yeah, and, you know, the, the one thing that still strikes me uh, is that uh, – this is a paper that's making double-digit dollars, 10 to 12 to 13 percent. And we still didn't have a local investor jump in to try to, to uh, step up and save the Tribune from this uh, hedge fund fate. So uh, I just uh, my great uh, worry here is that uh, – if it goes down bad and there are a lot of layoffs and the Tribune becomes a ghost of what it is now, then people are going to suddenly say, hey, what happened to the Tribune? And somebody who had a chance to, to take a shot to save it missed it. Well, Ray, if it does go through a year from now, what will the Tribune product look like? Well, we just don't know for sure. We just know that in other uh locales such as Denver or San Jose, California, or St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, the prices went up, the staff went down, and the uh, 
profits grew for uh, Alden. So it is um, not not good for consumers. It's not good for uh, a city that needs a watchdog for its government, for its uh, people, for people of all uh, all communities. I mean, you can have the the mayor talking about, oh, uh, I'm only going to talk to journalists of one color or the other, but the reality is there aren't, there's not racist uh, reporters in the city hall press corps. They wouldn't have lasted if they, if they had, if they had been. And uh, this is a, you know, we're talking about seasons, seasoned reporters who know how to cover uh, all issues from all angles from with all people of the city in mind. Hey, Greg, we should talk about Springfield a little bit. First of all, with regard to the BGA and Block Club Chicago, investigating Kim Lightford, the state senator who uh, is the majority leader of the Senate, who was actually— Yeah, they they, they had a pretty good story this week. Uh, Kim Lightford, if you remember, Loretta Hospital, on whose board she serves, uh, got in some trouble a while ago when it turned out that uh, people were pulling strings, uh, including folks who worked at the Trump Hotel to get— COVID vaccinations and other related special treatment. Uh, well, as it turns out, uh, in her capacity on the board, uh, uh, and, and she not only stuck up for what the hospital did, but it turns out that, uh, uh, gee, there's been some pretty nice trips to the Caribbean and whatever that were paid for, uh, not by her, uh, in her capacity as a board member, at least that's the report. Um, it, it certainly uh, casts a color over whether she's a, a, a truly objective uh, public spirited person on this one or not i didn't see anything illegal in the report did you uh i did not uh but this is is uh as we all know to use uh, to use uh, race phrase about seasoned journalists uh, the best uh, the best kind of stuff that happens in this town that uh, gets people rich isn't illegal it's just right up to the edge that's greg hines of cranes thanks to him also to heather sharon of wttw lynn sweet of the sun times and ray long of the tribune Up next, my colleague Kim Gordon. There's a new buzz across the Chicago area. The cicadas are making a return to Illinois. Joining me today is Katie Dana, scientific specialist in entomology at the Illinois Natural History Survey. Katie, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thanks so much for having me. Glad you're with us. So it's been a while since we've heard from this noisy group of bugs. Remind us exactly what cicadas are and what type of bug they are. So cicadas are a, um, we call them true bugs. They actually have a straw for a mouth part, so they drink plant juices. Um, cicadas are interesting because they spend most of their life underground before coming above ground to feed and um, lay their eggs. So the big question is, is are we going to see a lot of them in the Chicago area this year or are we are we going to get a break? <laughs> you are going to get a break from the periodical cicadas this year. So most of the cicadas um, for this brood are going to be out in eastern Illinois, central eastern Illinois. But in 2024, you guys are going to get another emergence in the Chicago region. So a few more years to go. OK, so when you say what area of the state then are going to have the most? the most cicadas? Um, so, so around Vermilion, Edgar, Clark, Crawford counties, so um, around the Danville area. Okay, so we're not going to see any little strays here who may have come up in the ground in the wrong place or anything like that? There, there may be some stragglers. I, I know um, the Lincoln Zoo sometimes says that they have them almost every year. And you will see your dog day cicadas, but those are going to be out in July and August. 
Okay, and what's the difference between those? Um, timing is one of the major differences. Um, they're also very different species. So the periodical cicadas, their life history strategy is to just come out in so many, you know, you know, such huge numbers that the predators get full before they can eat everyone. Whereas our dog days are the ones that come out later in the season. So periodicals are in, you know, May and June, and then our dog days are in the hottest parts of the summer, so July, August, September. Um, and those ones we don't see in the same numbers that we do the periodicals. Interesting. I just hope that people, you know, listen to the cicadas that they have in their neighborhood. We have uh, about 22 species of, of um, cicadas in Illinois, and each of those different species has a different call. And so you can kind of think of them as, you know, like bird calls, right? Each one is different, um, and you hear them throughout the different parts of summer, and I hope people enjoy it. Great. Well, while I have you on, on, um, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but are there any other um, issues with pests? this summer that we should know about? I know, you know, mosquitoes, West Nile virus, that can usually be a thing. Is there anything new or interesting that we should know about bugs as the summer approaches? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess, yeah, with mosquitoes this year, I, I encourage people to use their bug spray. I mean, um, I've already been out a little bit and the mosquitoes aren't too bad, but those buffalo gnats have been bugging me. So um, use your, your insect repellent and uh, yeah, enjoy the summer. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WRLS News.